Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hello, hello, and welcome to the news. It's the end of the week. At least here it is. Uh, and so we do the same show at the end of every week. A conversation about culture. Uh, we will be talking today a little bit later in the show about what happens when two movies about the same subject come out at the same time. And it happens with more frequency than you might expect and probably than it probably should. Uh, we'll talk about that, what it means, what happens, why, why does it happen? Uh, we'll also, if we have time, talk about bookshelves. The Washington Post has featured photographs taken by nine different writers of their own bookshelves, setting up possibly a cycle of bookshelf envy. But we're going to begin with a kind of a massive undertaking, which is the six-part bio documentary uh, of Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, The Last Movie Stars. It is directed by the actor Ethan Hawke, and apparently the director Ethan Hawke as well. Uh, and here to talk about it uh, is a wonderful panel, starting with Rebecca Castellani, uh, the co-founder of Quiet Corner Communications, a freelance writer. And this is not well known, the dolly grip uh, on the A camera for the fugitive kind. So she certainly is very rooted in the subject matter. Uh, Ileana Douglas, right. Douglas is a movie star. And in fact, uh, we are prepared to announce today, it's pretty exciting, She, we have named her the official movie star of the Colin McEnroe show. Uh, so, but uh, she also, <laughs> she knows her movies, as you will see uh, very, very soon. Uh, Tanisha Dugan is director, producer, and arts consultant. I'm not sure the Newman Woodward tie-in there. Uh, it's not in her bio, but I know it exists somehow. So... You know, Ileana, we should probably begin with you. The you you know you know these people. Uh, you knew the you knew one of them. You know one of them. Uh, you've had some contact with them. Um, and so I'm just sort of wondering what yes. what's what a six part docu series uh, on a on subject that's you know this is a source of fascination to you. You've done these kinds of presentations on Turner Classic Movies where you know you kind of talk through certain aspects of a movie. This is not that. In fact, it's kind of hard to say what exactly this is. It's a little bit different from projects that you might try to lump in with it. I would say that my, um, and uh, thank you for having me on, but um, I was thinking um, my biggest takeaway is, is that, you know, with the flaws in the in the documentary that it has, that my biggest takeaway is that it does represent an era of glamour and when there was really a respect for acting, that's what hit me in the solar mm. plexus the most was when it felt really great to be an actor and that you wanted to use your celebrity, not only to be a great actor and a better actor and a competitive actor, but you wanted to bring some good into the world. And that was the saddest part for me. And it, he does seem like I, there is no other star that I can think of that has done so much in terms of charitable resources. I mean, you know, I've got his lemonade in my refrigerator, <laughs> you know, so we still have this reminder. Right. The face, the face never completely goes away. But, you know, Tanisha, to, to Ileana's point, 
you know, about because it is called the last movie stars, even though there are movie stars still and there are movie stars connected to this project. We haven't really talked about the unusual format uh, of this project. But one thing that I'll say right away is part of the format involves Ethan Hawke on Zoom conferences with all kinds of actors who are, for the most part, just his friends, but they've agreed to work on this project, either by voicing other other parts, other uh, the, voicing the roles, essentially, of other real people who are mostly are no longer with us, um, or by just just kind of chopping it up with Ethan about various movies. And one thing that occurred to me was, you know, Tanisha, you know me well enough to, to know what I'm saying here. I don't really have a lot of opportunities to look down on other people's hair or coiffures, <laughs> you know. And one thing I learned about male movie stars of the Ethan Hawke generation is if they're not in set or anything, they don't care how they look. I mean, Sam Rockwell's hair is notably worse than my hair is and my hair is terrible <laughs> well you know i mean there's a lot of um labor in one's look when you are in the middle of production so i think part of it is like the um proverbial letting your unbuttoning your pants after thanksgiving which is like oh <laughs> that's jeffrey Tubin. that's a whole other documentary <laughs> exactly. like, oh I'm no longer this person i'm gonna just like just be, um, which I love. I love, I love. Ileana, I love that you t- sort of brought up this, this what we call golden age of, of acting. I am, you know, I trained as an, as an actor. So this entire, you know, series for me was such mm-hmm. a letter to the craft of acting, you know, and as somebody who, who trained with actors from um, the neighborhood, you know, it, it yeah. was... I went to the neighborhood playhouse. Too, I saw right? that. I then went on yeah. a deep dive of you and I was like, all right, <laughs> I must know. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was, it was amazing. And to see Sandy Meisner sort of talking, yeah. like thinking about spending an entire semester on Meisner technique and, and, oh, yeah. and this culture of artists and, and players and makers who were really investigating humanity and then putting it on screen for us was really stunning. And to see that sort of, craft of acting move from something that did feel a little removed and theatrical to, to this kind of realism that we've come to know as Western performance is, is really uh-huh. beautiful. And, you know, I think you're right. You know, we don't, yes, there are the Juilliards and the YSD, the Yale School of Dramas that still sort of maintain a bit of that um, energy, but it's a different kind of, of collection of artists than existed at that time and so you don't have um you know studios coming in and plucking these these artists really from from these schools you've got yes the kids coming out of Juilliard and YSD and and you NYU grad but you also have like the TikTok stars who have no sense of craft and are just (laughs) being themselves you know um and to your intro Colin before you move off of me I actually do have a connection a personal connection to PN um and that's (laughs) my roomie (laughs) the father of my children um was a a benefactor of his generosity and kindness. Uh, He grew up in Westport in a a group home and Paul would come to the group home. He was a supporter um, in all of the ways. And and, uh, when I told my roomie I was doing this show, he regaled me with uh, being able to drive in the Porsche with Paul and and Westport and, and, you know, he's a big guy. And Paul said, you got some shoulders, you can move some people, you know, and that opened up a conversation that I think has, has, I know, having talked to my roommate, uh, has uh, 
has indelible effect on him. And so seeing those later episodes where we learn about that Paul um, was really touching for me. Right. So, yeah. Oh, see, I knew there was a connection. All right. Before I go to Rebecca, because I think we still haven't quite established how this documentary unfolds and, and the somewhat unique narrative devices that Ethan Hawke has decided to use. So let's hear Ethan Hawke, Alessandro and Nivola, and the aforementioned Sam Rockwell uh, talking a little bit about what's about to happen. Right before the pandemic started, one of Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward's kids approached me to direct a documentary about Paul and Joanne. Paul had begun working on a memoir. They did over 100 interviews. He said to him, tell the truth. Stuff they would never say if they weren't with friends. What happened to these tapes? He poured gasoline on them and lit them on fire. Wow except they had had them all transcribed. I'm trying to turn it into kind of like a play with voices. A community looking back. So you get, so I, I still, it may not still be clear, but so what happened was Woodward and Newman uh, had sort of green-lighted this whole project where there would be these kind of oral history interviews uh, with all, all kinds of people, including family members, including even Paul Newman's first wife, uh, and and also actors and directors and people like that who were very close to them. Uh, and so the the sound no longer exists. So Hawk has tried to recreate this, uh, having George Clooney do the Paul Newman stuff from the transcript, Laura Linney doing Joanne Woodward from the transcript, Zoe Kazan plays Paul Newman's first wife. Play is the wrong word. Voices, I guess maybe. Karen Allen uh, is uh, Joanne Woodward's stepmother, and on and on. Uh, Sam Rockwell is uh, plays the director of Cool Hand Luke, for example. And I'm going to mess up his name, although I actually saw him in prom on Broadway. Brooks Ashmanskas uh, does a pretty pretty sterling Gore Vidal impersonation. <laughs> so, Rebecca, but there's something about – I feel like we're watching kind of on-the-job training a little bit. I, think, I feel like at times I'm watching Ethan Hawke figure out how to do a documentary. And in a very sort of mm. postmodern way, he's decided to in- include all of that uh, – and it's, all of that in the in the finished product product deliberately doesn't look finished, and yeah. I was sort of charmed by that at first, and then I started to struggle with it a little bit. I, I love your thoughts, though. I kind of had the same experience at first. I was absolutely this took my breath away. Like I've ne- I watch a lot of documentaries; they're mostly murder centric. Um, this is not really something that I would naturally gravitate towards. I was not super familiar with Joanne Woodward at all. Um, I've only seen a handful of things that Paul Newman has been in, so not really something I was that compelled by but the minute it started and it had this sort of multimedia quality where you've got the the transcripts that are being read you've got these beautiful photographs and video from their lives and then also using the movies these two people were in to tell the story sort of like out of context of the movie but within context of their personal narratives it felt like a living art installation and it felt like you were watching the artist in his studio and i don't know if this is just something it was a natural byproduct of the pandemic and quarantine, but it kind of reminded me of Bo Burnham's inside in that same way. It was unfinished and raw. And this is the art I need to make right now because we're in quarantine. I don't have access to this arsenal of tools that I usually would have. And that was endearing to me though by, you know, episode five, I was like, we did need an editor here. This is getting a little (laughs) long, 
But other than that, I thought that the the context and the way it was all framed and presented was one of the most compelling, interesting things. Obviously, the love story is amazing. The acting, golden age of acting, amazing. Their sex life, compelling, shocking. I felt I should look away at sometimes. Um, but on the whole, my biggest takeaway from this was how innovative this type of a documentary is. And I really hope we start seeing this sort of like artistic mixed media hybrid model for future documentaries. I thought it worked really, really well. Yeah, there are times where this is very charming and, you know, you'll see, I don't know, Ethan Hawke's dog will get up behind him, you know, or he'll be moving the laptop around to get to a better Wi-Fi spot. Or uh, This is stuff that ordinarily I think would wind up on the cutting room floor, so to speak. But, you know, Liana, I'd like to maybe build a little bit on what, what Rebecca was just saying, which is this project seems to be about so many different things, uh, ranging, as she says, from the personal and, yes, even sex lives uh, of the star couple uh, and and their family drama to issues of acting technique and projects and awards you didn't win and and just, you know, movies that people love. And I mean, it's about everything. And I think there's a risk when you try to make something like this about everything, which is that you leave people with, they don't really have the climbing ropes sometimes that they need to get up to where you are. Well, I, I mean, as a documentary, I don't, you know, again, is this a more modern approach that you're not supposed to have really a point or a center (laughs) because, you know, that's what I wondered. I was like, well, maybe somebody else sort of loves all these tangents, but therefore, some as a viewer when i'm home and i'm thinking well what did happen with their marriage or you know what i mean what was this obsession that they constantly had to do movies together i mean it sort of reminded me you know the way tom cruise and nicole kidman were in Mm. eyes wide shut you know where there's almost like a desperation like see how sexy we are together (laughs) on screen and then the other, you know, of course, the, the, the biggest issue for me is, you know, I thought they would have spent more time, uh, you know, on, on the fact that he really was, they created a dynamic that she was a great actor and he was the sex symbol. And then they would cut to something like The Verdict, which is so amazing that you'd say, well, he is an amazing actor. And what, what, I, what they stayed away from, I thought a little bit, was it the reason I felt that he never really won an Oscar is that he was daring enough to play these characters that lacked morality. You know, they weren't vulnerable and, and they didn't, you know, and like cool hand Luke or the hustler or HUD and, or HUD, of mm-hmm. course, the biggest one of all. And so, and then that when he did win an Oscar, he was indifferent. They built a slightly different narrative of like, Oh, and he didn't go there. I didn't know if that was exactly true, but again, I don't know if that's the way that was the narrow, you know, so it chose when it wanted to have a certain narrative and for people that aren't so much in the know, I guess that's okay. But I thought that Paul Newman truly, there were so many shots of him without his shirt on that I thought (laughs) clearly he enjoyed I, I think it was a conundrum. He enjoyed being a sex symbol, yet he felt conflicted by yeah. being a sex symbol. And they never really stated that. Right. I, I And I should say I have a, a little personal connection in the sense that 
my roomie, to use Tanisha's term, uh, is uh, during the <laughs> 70s, during political campaigns, was driving Newman around a lot, picking him up uh, from the house in Westport where, you know, Joanne's uh, in the kitchen in a house scout uh, making breakfast for everybody and, and driving around all day. And you sort of get to know somebody a certain way. And it cl- was clear that he had been in some really scary situations with fans. It, his life was like being the Beatles from 1963 to 1966, except he did it for 30 years. For 30 years, he could walk into a place and women would start to get the vapors, and, and but also maybe want to want to like grab him or you know, and and he he was clearly he had learned that this could be a pretty traumatic thing uh, and not something that he was looking for. But you know, Tanisha, I want to stay for a second with the question of what we're looking for. And I'm thinking like even based on what you've said so far about just, you know, your own training as an actor. And I mean, it's kind of there and it's kind of not there, right? If you really wanted to know how Newman and Woodward got those performances, you know, once in a while, like in episode six, they really do tell us some a little bit of stuff about the verdict and what Sidney Lumet told uh, told Newman to do, go home this weekend and blah, blah, blah. I won't wreck it. But I don't know. If you were really interested in acting, you kind of have to sit through a lot of other stuff to get through the, to the nuggets that are really about acting. So I don't know. How did that work for you? I mean, I guess I have a more generous and gracious interpretation, maybe because I'm more open to seeing it yeah. or maybe not. I don't know. But it's it's interesting for me. And I don't know Paul personally. So, right. I'm just an outside observer watching this documentary really fresh. What I took was that, like, he was beautiful and sexy. And that is why he was so Hollywood perfect. And he learned to be a great actor along the way. That's mm-hmm. sort of what I took, right? Yeah. And and that Sidney Lumet moment is so iconic, you know, as a craftsperson, but also I think for Paul, because it was like that that everlasting acting tool, which is like, you're not showing me you. Mm. I'm not getting you. And so you need to go and figure out how to show up as you, because you understand this more than you're giving me. Um, and 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 that that that's really tasty and juicy. I mean, on the other side, you know, away from the the craft of it all, I was totally into the story of their love affair, mm. of how that started. I, you know, totally as a as a parent, um, as a woman who has made choices around her career, a career that is in entertainment, was so taken by Joanne's sort of trajectory, you know. And and I'm sure he learned by watching her, right? I'm sure that there's a little bit of of osmosis happening um, through that relationship in all the ways. Um, so I think I was able to take you know more out of it, but I also think perhaps I was a more open vessel and looking um, for for some guidance, for lack of a better term, um, across this documentary. Yeah, I mean, the relationship stuff, Rebecca, is really interesting. And there's sort of, you know, quite frequently, I think, people who want to know about the personal lives of famous people, particularly of of movie stars or rock stars, you, you know, if you really want to know about that stuff, you're often kind of pressing your nose again up against the window of the candy store, and you can't really see that much stuff. What was kind of unusual here was that these tapes included... Like, really, Paul Newman talking about what their sex lives yeah. were like at the beginning of their relationship. George Clooney is now doing that voice, I think, for that. And also the kids talking about how there had to be, like, a deadbolt on the bedroom door. So <laughs> Two so doors no- and a deadbolt. Like, that is some wild stuff. Yeah, I love that about it. I think that, you know, so many of these documentaries are secondhand accounts or they're really speculative. So to actually hear 
a primary document read by fantastic actors in their own right. I think the choice to cast Clooney as Newman and Laura Linney as Joanne was just absolutely spot on because they seem to also sort of imbue the same sort of characteristics that Newman and Joanne did, I, I feel. So I just thought that that was such an effective way of sort of communicating the story and really getting into the relationship and sort of really getting an honest, very intimate picture of who these people were that goes far deeper than I think the guise of celebrity. I think that anybody with a strong partnership where there's different dreams, different dynamics, different division of responsibilities and expectations, I think that would resonate with anyone in any circumstance. So I'm going to probably ask you all of this, all you, ask all of you this question, but but Ileana, what did you, I mean, it's weird to ask this about a six-part docu-series, but what did you want more of? Well, uh, what I wanted more of, and then I, I just want to jump on what you said. It, there, You know, it's just my opinion as an audience member. It's for fun. Whenever anyone makes a documentary, there's a narrative. Did I feel as a person who makes movies myself, gee, they really want to nail home. <laughs> they, they had a lot of sex. I mean, <laughs> they're really, boy, they're really pressing that point that, he, you know, that they were a couple. So, you know, in the back of my mind, did I cynically sometimes think, oh, the family's putting this together and they want to make absolutely sure the narrative of the happy couple is there. That aside, you know, um, and that was just my funny viewpoint. What I what I wanted to see more about were just things that, as a cineast, um, number one, there was no nobody was given credits. Um, so, you know, when they're working on HUD, I would have liked to have seen my grandfather's name, Brandon DeWill, Patricia Neal, you know, the the James Wong Howe, how how they rehearsed HUD for six weeks, like a play, how he stayed in character the entire time, and just how how much of a commitment that he had. He found that project himself. You know, it was a book by Larry McMurtry. The character was a very minor character. They made a lot of changes when they adapted it to the screen. So there, there was just very interesting things, you know, with um, the same thing with a hustler. I see Jackie Gleason, and he doesn't have a credit under his name or Piper Laurie. And so when you, so yes, it makes me want to go see the movies. But I, for me as a viewer, I, it was like Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward in a vacuum without ever mentioning, you know, Robert Rawson or the people that made some of these movies. And so again, I, you know, it's a small critique, but that I wanted to see more of the cinema aspects of, of his career. Well, I think it's a particularly the point that you're making, particularly about some of the older movies, is an important one because a lot of people don't know who these people are. I mean, you know, I know who these people yeah. are, but I'm old, you know, and so yeah, I think that's sort of a weird omission. But Tanisha, I feel like this, in some ways, we're talking about a project that for all of the fun that it delivers and the insight and the interesting stuff, it does have a kind of attention deficit disorder. Like, it would really be hard for Ethan Hawke to spend enough time. I mean, like telling us, for example, that they rehearsed HUD for six weeks like it was a play, that would be a good thing for us to know. But I just don't really think that there's something about the attention, um, the attention economy of this thing where it just can't really do that for some reason. It's interesting you bring that up because I think that was one of the things I 
picked up about Ethan through this mm-hmm. documentary, which is that he seems to uh, be quick and fast and moving um, even in, as he's interviewing and talking with the other collaborators. Um, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think there is a bit of, um, you know, this is not a long form, <laughs> even though it's six episodes. Um, and I think it's it's trying to be of this time of things that move so fast. I mean, it's you bring this up and I think of that movie, that TV show, I want to say it's called like The Kitchen or The Bear, uh, which also is like, you know, in this like moving super fast, every, you know, no no scene lasts for longer than three seconds. And I think, you know, you see that in the in the mixed media and the usage of of, of how the story lays out. Um, and I and I wonder if that's just a, a, a function of producers. <laughs> giving notes, you know, and being like, this is how, you know, in order for this to stay interesting or entertaining, um, we have to move it faster. You know, I I just wonder, because I do think, you know, given the six episode arc, there is space if you wanted to, to actually give space within these chapters to instead of tackle all of the things in every episode, really sort of, you know, go down a path. You know, I think, you know, episode five in some ways does that with his son, Scott, but actually doesn't really give us enough space around Scott and that story and how it impacted the family for real. So you kind of have to like catch glimpses. I think I read an article in which it, you know, it it says that they revealed that Scott was abusive to his sisters. And I was like, I saw that episode. I don't remember that being Mm. revealed. Um, so I, I think you're right. There's something about the, the pacing of this that that allows us to miss, I think, important details. And because it's six episodes, I'm not sure if uh, one would go back through all the six episodes to reclaim anything they missed along the way. Um, so I do think in terms of critique, that is um, that is one. Yeah, I mean, for example, and Rebecca, tell me whether maybe this is there and I didn't catch it, but you get a lot of Gore Vidal. I don't think it's really clear that Gore Vidal was probably their best friend, the best friend of this couple, uh, or, or certainly the longest friendship of this couple. Joanne Woodward, who did not, like her husband, um, go out and work on campaigns and make appearances for campaigns, uh, told my partner the only time she ever did that was when Gore Vidal ran for something. Uh, she also confided or t- told this funny funny story about how Gore Vidal was the godfather for I think their first child together. And at the ceremony, as he held the baby, he turned to the people sitting at the religious ceremony and he said, he said, always the godfather, never the god. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and, but like, I, I, I feel like, like we get a lot of Gore Vidal, but I don't think it's really necessarily clear if you're watching this that he's a really, really close family friend who really knew them well. Because it, I don't know, there's sort of a... There's... I just kept thinking, is that his actual voice? This voice that the <laughs> yeah. player is playing with. <laughs> very, very close, anyway. I don't know. And I guess, Rebecca, the other thing I'm thinking is this... These two actors were unusual, I think, in their intellectual rigor, or at least they were at the far end of the intellectual spectrum in the world of act acting. I'm sure Ileana would tell us that actors are all over the map. There's some really good actors who are in some ways almost a little kind of stupid, and there are some really good actors who are really, really smart and very intellectual. They were the latter. I don't know if that comes through either. Yeah, I definitely found myself having to do a lot of extracurricular Googling around this movie. And I, for the first movie documentary, for the first two episodes, I thought that was 100% on me, just kind of not knowing enough about this. 
But I did start to get the impression by the end, I was like, okay, maybe I'm not stupid and uncultured. Like maybe there has been like a lack of explanation around certain people that have been introduced. They'll like make, and I think to Ileana's point, they make some references, but then don't make others, which I would have liked a little more context around. So I found myself looking up the filmography a lot of the times because of the way they wove different movies into the telling of their actual story, I got very confused by their chronology of things. So I just, that was a little annoying, but I also didn't hate that. I thought that it was just like the sort of that nebulous, like this is kind of how life feels when you're looking back on it. It's not chronological. It's a flow of feelings and events and experiences. And I think that that was sort of effective in its own confusing way. One last point, Ileana, it's something that we mentioned, I think, in the emails, too, which is that, you know, for all of Newman's in particular sort of celebrated superstar status, this was a couple that went to a kind of unusual lengths to live a kind of normal life. They lived in Westport, Connecticut, not in a super fancy McMansion, just sort of a big, comfortable house. Um, And, you know, when as much as you can and be the last movie stars and also try to be regular people, they really made, you know, an honest, sincere shot at that from what I can tell. I I think that's completely true. I know when I was at the neighborhood playhouse, you know, and again, this, they were famous in a time, you know, I hate to say it before the internet where there's such a focus on celebrity. But when we were in the neighborhood playhouse, you know, Joanne Woodward would come and, you know, give a lecture Newman and Woodward would come at the end of the year and watch our final scenes. They discovered um, Dylan McDermott, Allison Janney, they kind of picked them out. They would do readings at their house. And there was never the idea, you know, you knew they were famous, but again, nobody, nobody dared take their picture or ask for an autograph. I mean, one time I was, you know, bold, bold enough to ask him to sign some HUD stuff for me and he did it and he was very nice and but there wasn't I I think that their persona was that they were very very serious actors and they you know to the end of their career they were they were doing films that portray you know that was part of their legacy all right, we're going to have to stop there. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to kind of speed date through a couple of, of other topics. And so stay with us. I've had that dream a thousand times, a thousand times, a thousand times. I've had that dream a thousand times. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to the news. Our panelists this week are Rebecca Castellani, Ileana Douglas, and Tanisha Dugan. I do want to say that Ileana is going to be on next Friday also. I think we've been putting together a pretty massive show about rom-coms that's going to have to be divided into two podcasts and stuff like that. But she and David Edelstein will be on talking about rom-coms. So there's this other thing that happens. You know, and it's weird. I mean, Godspell and Jesus Christ, those two movies, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, those two movies came out in the same year, (laughs) you know. Um, I mean, Volcano and Dante's Peak, two Volcano movies came out in the same year. Armageddon and Deep Impact, same year. Ants and A Bug's Bug's Life, two animated insect movies. That's the one. Rebecca, we should start there because I know that's the one that sort of has stuck in your mind. So so we should say Bob Mondello of NPR did a piece about this, uh, just these kind of weird coincidences. I think he found about 50 of them. Um, he doesn't even mention the fact that the Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones derivatives are on a collision course uh, to hit the stream of verse within weeks of each other right now. Um, but it is, I, I, you know, I think as moviegoers, we often go, oh, how come there's two of this movie? Yeah, how does this happen? Do people just not communicate in Hollywood? Like the ants, a bug's life thing is something that literally I think I probably have a conversation about once a month because the two movies are completely (laughs) conflated in my mind and I cannot for the life of me figure out what the plot of one is versus the other. It's just the same. It's just like one big bug movie, but the animation styles are uncannily different. It's just uncanny valley. I won't watch the movies again to actually get it straight, but I think about it a lot. It occupies a lot of energy in my brain. I just think this is a crazy topic. I mean, the ones, I feel like the early 2000s, there were tons of these, like The Prestige and The Illusionist. Yes. Those movies are the same, and they came out within six months of each other. Wild. So Ileana, you know, she raises a good question. Is there just really bad communication? Well, sometimes there's a lot of communication, right? I mean, Jezebel and Gone with the Wind came out at the same time, partly because Betty Davis didn't get the role in Gone yeah. with the Wind. And so they, sort of, they, they sort of put the pedal to the metal to get this other, you know, Civil War type picture out uh, and, and directly, perhaps foolishly, try to compete with Gone with the Wind. Well, I know... Um uh, also with a, uh, the mutiny on the bounty. Sometimes, I mean, it's slightly off topic, but uh, they keep making the same movie. Like, they, why do they keep making Mutiny on the Bounty? They've made it like every era has a Mutiny on the Bounty. But um, I'm mortified to say that it not only happened to me once, it happened to me twice. <laughs> uh, we did uh, Grace of My Heart and then to our horror, you know, a week before our movie came out, which is about music in the 60s, Tom Hanks put out That Thing You Do. And although we were very nicely uh, reviewed, some people said they called us That Thing You Do Better, uh, They we were totally eclipsed by the Tom Hanks movie. And then a couple of years later, I kid you not, Stir of Echoes came out the same week as The Sixth Sense. And even though they're not remotely the same movie, because they were both about ghosts, we were totally eclipsed by... Um, the sixth sense, but my favorite—I I can't believe you haven't mentioned Turner and Hooch and Canine, which also came out at the same time, and both are about you know 
cops paired with dogs. (laughs) How did that idea get made (laughs) into not one movie, but two movies? Right. As I told you as we were emailing, for me, Grace of My Heart and a movie, I think it might have come out the next year, but maybe six months later, a movie called Georgia came out, which is also about a woman songwriter. And I don't know. For some reason, those are the two that sort of were kind of bumping together in, in my mind. Direct, both directed by women, maybe. Yeah, that could be true. That could be another part of it. So, yeah, Tanisha, I don't know. I mean, I just want your overall reaction to this. I mean, it's sort of weird when you think of all the movies that can't get made, that get stuck in pipelines that we never get to see because they just, you know, they don't make it all the way through the production pipeline. It is kind of weird that we have to watch two of the same movies at the same time. I mean, it's... It... <laughs> As a person who watches the sausage get made, I'm like, it's not weird. Actually, it's it's actually exactly <laughs> it's meant to be. And 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 in some cases, it's like a a dog with a bone, right? Like you're like, I will not let this idea die. I will. I will. I don't care that uh, there's another one coming out. I, I'm going to make one too, and I'm gonna make it better. Um, and also, I think there's there's a, I think a weird belief that that it's easier to market something that audiences already understand or know um you know and and so we see not just the twins happening within the same season but you know i mean i love a league of their own i love that movie i'm unsure about a season of this thing you know i think i think the idea of sort of taking a kind of idea or intellectual property and replicating it a thousand times over is is unfortunately the way of, of this this their business. But I feel woefully out of my depth as well because I'm like, I don't, I don't, I, I know some of the I know Bugs Life. Never saw it. <laughs> right? Well, like, well, consider yourself I know Turner and yeah. I don't know this other movie. So maybe that's the other thing. It's like a it's like an uh Ali fight. Like yeah. the there's gonna be one that wins the day and oh, the other one just sort of totally. I totally believe that. Um I mean Armageddon definitely beat Final Impact or whatever that Tia Leone movie is. Uh, and I don't even know what it's called and I watched it. Uh, and certainly, I think Dante Speak beat Volcano too. I just was wondering, Tanisha, what would you think about a version of Mutiny on the Bounty but a women's baseball team would be sort of the, you know, the people on the ship, you know? I was wondering if Make the, it happen. Yeah, I, I, I'm into I it. could get that green lighted by Matt Damon, I think. Um, all right, so uh, we have to switch gears really, really fast here. We don't have a whole lot of time to talk about this, but I just know it's a subject that is kind of near and dear to people's hearts, and that is the subject of one's own bookshelves. So today, the Washington Post did this thing where they asked nine writers to photograph the parts of their book collection, parts of their bookshelves, uh, and I guess their favorite bookshelf um, for what social media might refer to as a shelfie. Uh, and so they did. Uh, and so I don't know. I'm just going to kind of generally get your reactions. Uh, I know, Ileana, you've just written a book, right? So it's you're probably starting to think about bookshelves that uh, might have that book on them someday. But uh, I'm also just thinking just in terms of your own bookshelves, uh, how do they match up with those in the Washington Post? Well, I I don't know about you guys, but one of the things I was upset, the best part of quarantine COVID was like watching CNN and looking at people's bookshelves. Yes. Seeing what they had in the back. And then then suddenly it shifted from bookshelves to guitars. I don't know if anybody (laughs) knows. Right? Like, like, okay, he wants me to know he plays the guitar. But um, no, I'm this. More democratic, the guitar. Yeah. (laughs) I moved to Connecticut and this is the best 
office I've ever had. It's a room and every wall is bookcases. Mm. So I painted it lime green. And I finally, in one room, have every single book, movie book from when I was a little kid. It, I finally have everything out and I can have all my little displays. I mean, I don't know if, you know, what I like to do is sort of pretend I'm in my own, you know, Meg Ryan uh, movie where everything looks like a set and you've got perfectly placed books and then pictures of you getting awards so that somebody comes in and goes, Oh, I didn't know you got an award for that. And, you know, you could put, I have my grandfather's Oscar and it just looks casually placed, but it's all there for a very, very specific. <laughs> reason. Uh, That's well, my idea of yeah. a good bookshelf. Actually having visited Joyce Carol Oates and seeing her electric guitar collection, I can just tell you that, you know, a lot of these authors, they're just very into their guitars. Um, that I made that up. Um, so, Rebecca, how about you? Uh, what was your reaction to these bookshelves? I love it. I feel like it's very psychologically illuminating how somebody chooses to organize their books. Um, personally, I like an alphabetic approach. I like to also sometimes organize by theme. Um, but I'm running out of bookshelf space, so I've also now started implementing stacks of books that I sort by color. So I'm really chaotic, and I'm doing multiple sorting motifs at this morning at this moment in time which i'm fine with i think that's sort of apropos of my current state yeah i like the ellen hildebrand 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 i think uh, who she has just if you have if you have a really special book if she has one of your books and it's just really it, it kind of graduates to this one shelf that is just the favorites yeah you know, i love that I, I like that concept anyway that, it, that it's not grouped thematically alphabetically or by the color of the cover or all these other ways that people use but just these are my favorites i could mm. so, i could sort of see doing that if i had any real bookshelf space at this point so uh yeah so tanisha how about you uh, so I have to reveal something about my approach to this show, which is that we'll get a list of suggestions and I always do a hot take. This yeah. is like before I've read anything, before <laughs> I've like dived into anything, I just have a hot take and I like tend to like share that out. So my hot take on this was like, oh, I love, uh, you know, styling a bookshelf. I love the color code. I love the, you know, the backwards. You can't really see the binding, which is completely ridiculous, but like you know, <laughs> beautiful. Um, and then I went down this rabbit hole of like, what did the bookshelves in my house actually look like? Mm -hmm. And and they're actually, depending on where in the house the bookshelf is, they serve a different function or a different mm. organizational capacity. Um, and I learned today that the books nearest to my heart or the things that I am like, that are actively like serving my mind and my spirit and my brain right now are right by my bed. Hmm. And then there are things, you know, bookshelves around the house that also serve other things. And they're, my favorite is the performative bookshelf, which are all of like, you know, the great classics and the things that black intelligentsia should have <laughs> and should read that like are in a public space, which I find um, heartwarming and hilarious. Um, but this was a fun, like once I actually dove into other people's shelfies and and my own, I was sort of like, oh, this is actually a, a kind of Rorschach of, of how you how you live and, and consume a particular kind of culture, which is really kind of cool. I have just one really quick observation, which is in, in the age of Audible and other audiobooks, it's sort of weird that I now, there are some books that are very important to me that I don't own copies of uh, because mm -hmm. I, I listen to them. <laughs> 
which is unusual. Uh, I also want to say that Emma Straub and I own a lot of the same books and like a lot of the same books, despite the fact that I've never read an Emma Straub book or been tempted to. So, But maybe I should now. All right. We have to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to make some recommendations, do some endorsements, all that kind of stuff. Okay, got to do this fast because we're short on time. Thanks to Cat Pastor, our technical producer today, handling all this complicated stuff. Today's episode was produced by Jonathan Tyson and Lily McPants, by which I mean the two producers kind of, they, as the Ghostbusters would say, they crossed streams. They managed to produce this together somehow, handing the baton back and forth. Uh, so we're going to go back to our panel, have them make some recommendations and endorsements. Denisha Dugan, why don't you get us going? Okie dokie. I'm going to start um, with a recommendation for a play that's opening in Hartford on August 5th. It's called Believe. It's a wordless, immersive theatrical experience um, by the Other Voice Company, which specializes in, in works that are, are that are non-vocal. Um, and the project um, is a performance art piece that asks us whether or not we can find faith in this post-COVID world. So that's my first um, endorsement, recommendation, suggestion that opens August 5th. Uh, and then my other one, many of you know that Beyonce's album uh, released today. Um, and she has a song uh, that features the voice of Barbara Ann McTeer of National Black Theater. She's the founder of the National Black Theater. She's no longer alive. And so as a nod to uh, multidisciplinary connections, I endorse Beyonce pulling in theater as a part of her work, particularly legacy Black theater as a part of her work. Um, and I hope to see more of those collections and collisions and connections uh, as we keep thinking about how we make culture and work and art uh, to come. Very cool. All right. Rebecca Castellani, how about you? Okay, so I noticed very briefly while watching uh, the last movie star is that they featured a clip from What's My Line, which is an old game show that my mother and 92-year-old grandmother and I have recently rediscovered this summer and have been playing in our own time. It's a very simple conceit. You have to have a panel that are trying to guess somebody's occupation. And you just got a lot of like classic movie stars and personalities appearing on the show. And it's very fun and lighthearted and hilarious often so highly recommend uh youtubing what's my line and watching some of those old episodes um and then my second endorsement is also related to the last movie stars and that is generally the music of hamilton leithauser he is the man responsible for a lot of the music in the documentary he's got like a new and esque look to him he's very tall and classically handsome and it's just an absolutely fantastic musician if you have not gone down the Hamilton Leithauser rabbit hole. I recommend it. All right. Uh, and Ileana Douglas, how about you? What are you going to recommend? Well, I'm definitely going to recommend The Last Movie Star because even though it's kind of messy and like as messy as Sam Rockwell's hair, I think everybody should take a look at it and learn about uh, Newman and uh, – and Woodward. I would say to watch, um, for me, if you haven't seen HUD, it's an amazing film. 
by Paul Newman, um, Nobody's Fool. And, uh, and, and there's a wonderful uh, documentary called The Best of Enemies by yes. uh, Morgan Neville and Robert Gordon. I don't know if anyone's seen it, but it, it has Paul Newman and Gore Vidal in it. And it follows uh, Newman at the Democratic Convention. It's pretty wild. As far as Joanne Woodward goes, I would say watching The Fugitive Kind, directed by Sidney Lamette, and then uh, Rachel Rachel, directed by Paul Newman. She gives an astonishing performance, and he directed it, and I think it's uh, it's an incredible movie. And then my last shameless plug is that my brother's written a book about steamboats from the 1800s <laughs> called Night Boat to New York, uh, published by the Globe Pequot Press. So if you like steamboats, you can pick it up. I'm going to do one more Newman movie, and that is we've, we've actually already mentioned it today. It's The Verdict. Uh, it is uh, I, in 1982, I think. Uh, it is really kind of Newman in the hands of director Sidney Lumet, kind of, I don't know, almost kind of rediscovering himself a little bit and maybe giving a very special performance. But the movie itself is great. It has a terrific supporting cast, too. I'm a big Jack Warden fan. He's in there. James Mason uh, is there as this lawyer whom Jack Warden describes as the effing prince of darkness. Uh, he's going to be Paul Newman's adversary. And not to be a guy or anything, but we do have Charlotte Rampling kind of <laughs> at 1935. No, so she's about 36 years old, I think, in this movie. And that's kind of peak Charlotte Rampling. So, um, <laughs> so I'll just leave it there. I'll leave it there. But it's a really great movie. It's really terrific. And it, it just goes to a lot of really interesting places. And Newman is amazing. I mean, it's really one of his great, great performances. I'm also going to endorse a book that I saw on Emma Straub's bookshelf uh, in, in, in that article in the Washington Post. It's a new book. It's called Sleepwalk. It's by a writer named Dan Kaon, I think, I don't really know how to say his name. It's C-H-A-O-N. So it's like chaos, but with an N at the end. Uh, and it's it's set in a kind of not too far distant apocalyptic sort of semi-apocalyptic future. It has one of the most bizarre first-person narrators I have ever encountered. Somebody who's like just – who's – essence you can't really kind of pin down uh, entirely. Uh, on the other hand, he's just unbelievably engaging too. And he has this this uh, former fighting pit bull dog whom he's tamed, who's with him and his, whose name is Flip. Uh, and, and the dog also becomes kind of an amazing character within it. So I, it's not a book that's going to be for everybody. But if you feel like maybe taking a dip into kind of a strange story, uh, once again, it's called Sleepwalk. It's by Dan Kahn. All right. So thanks very much to this wonderful panel. It was so glad, glad to have Rebecca Castellani, co-founder of Quiet Quarter Communications, freelance writer Ileana Douglas, movie star, television star, needs no introduction. Uh, Tanisha Dugan is a director, producer, uh, and arts consultant. And thanks to all of you for listening. I should tell you, I'm going to be away for next week. We are going to have this brand new rom-com show that features Ileana and other people as well. Uh, and there'll be other stuff, and I have no idea what a lot of it is. But enjoy the week. I'll be back a week from Monday with one of our Ask or tell me anything shows. Joking, talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington. Yeah, 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 yeah.